Welcome to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist Church, where we exist to delight in God, display His grace, and declare His gospel all through Jesus Christ our Lord. We can be reached at www.2bcmtv.org or by calling 618-244-1706. We trust you'll be encouraged and challenged by the message you're about to hear. see you this morning. Happy Reformation Sunday to you. Happy Lord's Day to you. If you have a Bible, would you take it this morning and turn with me to Psalm 19. Psalm 19. This morning we are hitting the pause button on our study together of the Sermon on the Mount because this is Reformation Sunday, which we celebrate annually as a church, and so I thought it would be good for us this morning to pause and to consider really what was the basis, the foundational reason for the Reformation in the 16th century. What, what was the spark that ignited it, and how are we now the recipients of it and should live in light of it? So this morning we're going to be looking at this idea of sola scriptura, scripture alone, uh, the beauty and the value of God's word. And we'll see that together in Psalm 19. So let's pray and we'll jump in. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have condescended, holy, infinite, almighty creator, to speak to us to reveal yourself to us in Holy Scripture. And so as we come to your word now, we ask, Lord, that you would speak again. May we have hearts humbled, ready to listen. And may you show us this morning the infinite value of your word that points us to the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, our Savior. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. The year was 1521. The German reformer Martin Luther, he had been summoned to what was known as the Diet of Worms or the Diet of Worms. And he was summoned there in order to appear before Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor. And because of his writings, beginning with his 95 Theses, which he had nailed to the castle church doors there in Wittenberg, hoping for an academic debate on the selling of indulgences just four years prior to this event. And so he had been summoned there by the emperor because his writings were in conflict with the Roman Catholic Church. Story goes like this. On April the 17th, a great crowd gathered for the event. Luther, who by this time was already branded a heretic by the church, in order to be kept safe, was escorted like a thief through alleyways. 
Wearing the garb of an Augustinian monk, Luther appeared before Charles V. Luther's writings were then set on a table, and he was asked whether he would stand by what he had written. Will you recant? He was asked. Luther did not take this moment lightly. He feared speaking rashly, not wanting to do harm to God's word, nor to put his own soul in jeopardy. And so Luther asked for time to think about his answer. But returning the next day, Luther entered with an unusual resolve. He asked that he be refuted with real proofs of his wrongdoing. The scriptures, said Luther, should be determinative in this matter. Should he be shown in his books, uh, the errors from the scriptures, he would gladly recant, and not only recant, he would be the first in line to burn his books. Johann Eck, the official responsible for responding to Luther, was not pleased with Luther's reply. He demanded that Luther recant the heresies taught in his books. Eck was clear that the tradition of the Roman Catholic Church and its councils could not be questioned by a single individual like Luther. So he demanded that Luther give him a clear answer. Will you recant or not? And with that, Luther spoke these famous words. Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the Pope or in councils alone, since it is well known that they often err and contradict themselves, I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not retract anything, since it is neither right nor safe to go against conscience. I cannot do otherwise. Here I stand. May God help me. Amen. Luther was convinced of the authority of the scripture. That the scripture and the scripture alone is the highest and the final authority. Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scriptures, my conscience is bound to the word of God. Beloved, it is the scripture alone. It is not church tradition. It is not councils. It is not popes. It is not confessions. It is not your feelings. It is the scripture alone. And the reason that Luther believed this is because of what this book is, the very revelation of God, the very word of God. And nowhere do we see this more clearly than right here in Psalm 19. Psalm 19 is really a celebration of the word of God. David is celebrating how God has graciously revealed himself to all mankind through creation, but he has revealed himself uniquely and personally in Holy Scripture, in the Word of God. This is the very revelation of God. And that's what we see here in Psalm 19. 
If you have your place there, would you please stand out of honor for the reading of God's word? Beginning in verse 1, David writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to the choir master, a psalm of David, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork, day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out throughout all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect. Reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, in keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This is the word of God. Thanks be to our God. You can be seated. It's important that you know that Luther, he didn't set out to be a reformer. He didn't set out to ignite a reformation. He didn't even set out really to make any decisive break from the Roman Catholic Church when he nailed those 95 theses on October the 31st of 1517. But even in his 95 theses, you, you see the, the beginnings, the percolating of what would later become the Reformation mantra of sola scriptura or scripture alone. You see him even this early, appealing to the authority and the uniqueness of the Scriptures. For example, in his 95 Theses, Thesis number 18, he calls on debaters to prove an escape from purgatory from the Scriptures. In number 53, they are, he quote, quote enemies of Christ, who forbid altogether the preaching of the word of God in some churches in order that indulgences may be preached in others. Or thesis number 54, injury is done to the word of God when in the same sermon an equal or larger amount of time is devoted to indulgences than to the word. And so what you hear there. In these theses is that Luther is appealing to the primacy and the authority of the Bible over church tradition. And that was really the spark that ignited 
the Protestant Reformation. This idea that Scripture alone is the highest authority because the Scripture is God speaking. God has uniquely revealed Himself in the pages of Holy Scripture. That's the foundation. The church's understanding of the inspiration of the Scriptures was well summarized by B.B. Warfield who said, when the Scripture speaks, God speaks. That's what it is. When the Scripture speaks, God speaks. And Luther said that to affirm the Scripture as the Word of God is to confirm and confess that God speaks to us through the Scripture. That when the Scripture is read, Scripture is preached, Scripture is taught, you're hearing the very voice of God. God is speaking. It is God-breathed, as Paul tells Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 3. And we're bound to it. And so then what I want to do this morning is first, I just want to clarify this, this understanding here of what, what did sola scriptura mean to the reformers and what does it mean for us? And then I want you to see this doctrine, this teaching of sola scriptura from Psalm 19 in hopes that our time together here today, we would, beloved, more deeply treasure the word of God. What it is that you hold there in your hands. So first question I just want to answer as we look at this idea is, what is sola scriptura? That's a Latin phrase. There's five of them that sort of emerged out of the Protestant Reformation. These five solas, meaning, what is sola scriptura? It means scripture alone. Scripture alone. Now, what does that mean? What do we mean by that word alone? And this was the issue underlying the Reformation. Theologians here, they often make a distinction between what we call the formal cause of the Reformation and the material cause of the Reformation. Now, you say, what does that mean? Formal cause and material cause. This is important. First, the material cause, or what we might say the core issue, the core matter of the Reformation was this question of justification. How can ungodly sinners be made right with a holy God? That's the question. That's the core issue. That's the central issue. And that eventually became the core issue for Luther and the other reformers as well. This issue of justification of a right standing with God. The Roman Catholic Church taught and still does teach that justification took place primarily through the sacraments of the church being performed. Ex opere operato. By the work done, grace is given, whether there's faith or not. And so in essence, justification being right with God required faith plus works, grace plus merit, Jesus plus my own inherent righteousness. Whereas the reformer said, no, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There is no work to perform. 
There is no merit that you must earn. No, a right relationship with God doesn't depend on the sacraments. It doesn't depend on baptism. It doesn't depend on penance or deeds or anything you do. Rather, it is the work of Jesus Christ and Christ alone that is the ground of your justification. In fact, Luther himself said, justification by faith alone is the doctrine upon which the church stands or falls. It's the central doctrine. Justification by faith alone. So the material cause then of the Reformation was nothing less than the recovery of the gospel. The gospel was at stake. But there's also another cause for the Reformation, and it's no less important. And it's this doctrine of sola scriptura, scripture alone. So if sola fide, faith alone was the material cause, the core issue, then sola scriptura was the formal cause. The formal cause. Now, what does that mean? Meaning it's what's underneath. It's it's what's behind. It's what's supporting the Reformation. In other words, it was this sola, sola scriptura, from which all the other solas emerged. You don't have... Sola fide, faith alone, without sola scriptura. Scripture alone. It's the foundation. So if sola fide is a question of justification, sola scriptura is a question about authority. Who is the final authority? Is it the Holy Scripture or is it church tradition? That's the issue. What has God said? And the Roman Catholic Church taught that there are really two equal authorities. It's it's the Bible and it's the church. And the Reformer said, no. No. The Scripture alone is the inherent, inspired, sufficient, final authority. It is the supreme authority. It is the ultimate authority. That doesn't mean it's the only authority. Right? Not so low, so la. You hear people say often sometimes, well, no creed but the Bible. Well, that's not what sola scriptura means. Nor does it mean that all church traditions necessarily bad. It doesn't mean that there's no truth outside the Bible. No. What it does mean is that scripture has the final say. It's not the Pope in Rome. It's not your tradition. It's not my feelings. It's not whatever the culture says is acceptable. No, it's Scripture alone that is the final authority because it's the very Word of God. So that's what it is. That's what sola scriptura means. But listen to me. None of that matters. None of that matters if it's not what the Bible claims for itself. And here this morning in Psalm 19, you see... What the scripture claims about itself. Psalm 19 is a celebration of God's revelation. Primarily, his revelation in the written scripture. In fact, many note just how beautifully poetic this psalm is. Probably very familiar to you. 
C.S. Lewis famously said of Psalm 19 in his reflections on the Psalms, he says, Psalm 19 is perhaps the greatest poem in the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. And it's all about the Word of God. That's the central focus of this psalm. So this psalm is a celebration. It's a celebration about how God has revealed himself. He's spoken to all mankind in the world, yes, through creation, but more than that, how he has uniquely, most clearly revealed himself to us in the Word. Yes, he's spoken in the world, but he's revealed himself to us most clearly in the Word. And then the psalm ends with what should be our appropriate response in light of God's self-revelation and disclosure in the Word. In fact, there are three distinct parts or stanzas to this psalm, you probably see it broken up there for you in your Bibles very helpfully, that will form the three headings we'll use to walk through this psalm together. Let me give them to you. Number one, God's revelation in the world, verses 1 to 6. Number two, God's revelation in the Word, verses 7 to 11. And then third, our response to God's revelation, verses 12 to 14. So first, God's revelation in the world. Notice verses 1 to 6, this opening section. The psalmist David is drawing our attention to something that we often fail to see. Something that we often fail to recognize. The revelation of the glory of God in creation. That God speaks in creation. The Creator speaks through the creation. God isn't silent. He isn't hidden. He is, no, a speaking God. He is a revealing God. Theologians often refer to this speaking or this revelation of God in two ways. First, it's what we call General revelation, general revelation, God speaking to all people in all places at all times, which you can see that very clearly notice in verses 1 to 6. And then second, the second way he reveals himself is through what we call specific or special revelation, where God speaks uniquely in the pages of Holy Scripture. And that's what you find there, notice, in verses 7 to 11. So first we see, notice, God's general revelation in the world. Verse 1, look there, David begins here by marveling at creation. Verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Note there just the poetic parallelism he's using. The heavens are declaring, the sky is proclaiming. So David, notice, as he, as he looks up to the heavens, as he looks up to the sky, as he looks up to the heavenly bodies, the sun and the moon and the stars, he is in awe because what they are doing is they are speaking, they are revealing the glory of God. Verse 1, declaring, proclaiming, 
They're shouting. They're crying out. Verse 2, they're pouring out speech. They're, they're, they're speaking. They're saying something. Or verse 2, they're revealing something. What are they revealing? They're revealing the glory of God. They're revealing that all creation is the handiwork of God. They're revealing, verse 2, the knowledge of God. So David's telling us that the heavens were made by God for the expressed purpose of speaking, proclaiming, declaring the glory of God. Just a few weeks ago, I had a, a few friends and family back in Texas. I don't, I don't think you could see it here in the Midwest, but they were sending pictures of, a, of an annular solar eclipse. Breathtaking photos. Which is intended, David says, to point away from itself to the glory of the Creator. To draw attention away from the creation to the Creator. Which means, beloved, that as we look up we should see and we should perceive the weightiness of God and the worthiness of God and the majesty and the beauty of God revealed to us in the creation. And in verse 2, notice the heavens are declaring and speaking continually. Continually, day to day and night Tonight, they are speaking. They are revealing. So there's never a single moment when this declaration of the glory of God ceases. It is continual. It is incessant. It is constant. It doesn't stop. It's like a bubbling spring. It just continues to pour out speech. And in verse 3, notice what is really unusual is that this speaking, this declaring, is without words. It's without words. Verse 3, there is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. In other words, the heavens don't communicate with words. It's a, it's a wordless speaking. And yet, this speech is constantly and universally being heard. Look there, verse 4. Their voice, the, the, the heavens, the sky, goes out through all the earth and their words, these wordless words, to the end of the earth, the end of the world. Meaning what? Meaning there is nowhere that this revelation of God isn't heard. It is a wordless communication in all places, to all nations, no matter their language, from the highest mountain to the depths of the ocean, creation is calling out His name. And there is no one from the atheist in St. Louis metro area to the pantheist in sub-Saharan Africa who doesn't see it and doesn't hear it. But then, verses 4 to 6, David provides us an illustration of this. And he uses 
the Son in order to illustrate, to give an example of this revelation of God in creation that is seen and heard by all. Notice there at the end of verse 4, in them, in the heavens, in the sky, he has sent, set a tent for the sun. Or verse 6, it's rising, the sun, from our vantage point. It's rising, it's from the end of the heavens, and its circuit, or its track, to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Derek Kidner comments, God has assigned the sun its place to occupy and its course to run. And David uses the sun as a metaphor to describe this general revelation of God that everybody sees. What's the sun like? We'll look at verse 5, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber. So gentlemen, just as your face was glowing, watching your bride walk down that aisle, that's what the sun is like. It's beaming. It is just radiating the glory of God. Or verse 6, what's the sun like? Oh, it's like a strong man running its course with joy. So think, think chariots of fire. Think Eric Little. When I run, I feel his pleasure. The sun daily making its trek, making its way on the track appointed by God, running across the sky with joy. What's David's point? The sun comes out each day, rising in the east, setting in the west, spanning across the globe, and no eye is hidden from it. Everybody sees it. It is obvious. You don't have to go looking for it. All you have to do is open your eyes and you feel its warmth. Nothing's hidden from its heat. It's clear to all people. And that's what God's revelation in creation is like. Everybody sees it. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Psalm 14. Meaning what? What are the implications then of this revelation of God in the world to us? What are the implications of this? Let me give you a few before we move to our second heading. Implication number one. If this is what the creation is like, the beauty, the majesty, the wonder, then imagine what the creator is like. David wants us to behold the glory of God as we look up. Implication number two. Mankind is without excuse. Everyone knows instinctively that there is a creator and they are accountable to him. Romans chapter 1, notice this, verse 19 and 20. Paul says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. If they deny it, it's only because they suppress it. Which leads to implication number three. God's revelation in the world is enough to condemn us 
but not to save us. It's enough to condemn you, but not to save you. Again, Romans 1.18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Friends, by nature, we are truth suppressors. We suppress the truth. But everyone sees it, and all will be held accountable to it. Which leads to the final implication. Unless God then reveals to us himself in a saving way, in a more personal way, no one can be saved. We might know him as creator. We might know him as judge. You can't know him as savior. And that's where David turns next in verses 7 to 11. Look there with me. Second heading. The revelation of God in the word. God's revelation in the word, verses 7 to 11. Yes, the heavens may be declaring the glory of God and it's glorious, but they cannot they do not reveal the salvation of God. They can reveal the glory of God. They cannot reveal the salvation of God. Only in Holy Scripture is the grace of God, the gospel, revealed. Creation is incapable of revealing God in a saving way. We need something more. We need more than creation we must have God reveal himself to us in a personal, saving way. And that personal revelation is given in the Scripture. That's what the Reformers understood by Sola Scriptura. This book is the very revelation of God's Word. When it speaks, God speaks. In fact, look there, verse 7. There's a major shift that happens now with this change in subject where David moves from using, notice, the general generic name of God in verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God. That's Elohim, creator. It's a very broad, very generic name. But verse 7, he shifts now to use the personal name of God. Verse 7, the Lord, all caps, Yahweh. That's, that's the divine name. That's the covenant name. That's the name revealed to Moses. Remember in Exodus chapter 3, God speaks to Moses through the burning bush. In verse 13, then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And the Lord says, tell them, the Lord has sent you. That's my name. So notice that seven times here, beginning in verse 7 and concluding then in verse 14, seven times David very intentionally now uses this name Yahweh. Yes, God has revealed himself to all mankind in his world, but it is the Lord who has personally revealed himself in his word. 
And so, beloved, each time you hear this divine name, you're meant to remember this gracious, covenant-making, covenant-keeping God who redeems his people. So the heavens introduce us to the glorious creator, but the scriptures, the scriptures introduce us to the gracious redeemer. Here's how you know him intimately. Here's how you know him. And in verses 7 to 11, he draws our attention, notice now, to the uniqueness of God's word and the transforming effect in our lives. Now, Derek Kidner here, very, very insightfully, he points out the beautiful poetry of verses 7 to 11 by calling attention here to the nouns, the adjectives, and the verbs. The nouns, adjectives, and verbs. What do you mean, Pastor? Well, notice first the nouns. The nouns, these six titles for the written word of God. Verse 7, the law of the Lord. This is a comprehensive term for God's revealed will, the law. Verse 7, the testimony of the Lord. They they testify, they, they witness to who he is and what he requires. Verse 8, the precepts and commandments of the Lord. They speak, the scriptures do, with his own authority. Verse 9, the fear of the Lord. Emphasizing our appropriate response to his word, the fear of the Lord. Verse 9, the rules of the Lord, or you could say the ordinances, the regulations. So what's David showing us? He's showing us the comprehensiveness of God's word, the sufficiency of God's word, the authority of God's word. It's our authority, and it's all we need. Those are the nouns. Second, look at the adjectives. These six characteristics of the scripture that are showing us and revealing to us the trustworthiness of God's word. Look there, verse 7. They are perfect. The law of the Lord is perfect. It's meaning it's blameless. It's sure, verse 7, meaning it's trustworthy. It's firm. Verse 8, it's right and it's pure. Verse 9, it's clean and true. In other words, the scriptures are without error. They are true. They are right. Everything they say is true. As Luther said, popes and councils often err, but not the word of God. So David, he's just piling up adjectives to inform and remind you that God's written revelation is like God himself. It's true. It's perfect. And thus we can have full confidence in the Holy Scripture. But then, finally, and perhaps most importantly, David draws our attention to the benefits or the effects of God's written revelation. What does the Word of God do. Look at third, the verbs now. These six effects or benefits of God's word. Verse 7, 
It revives the soul. Breathing life into the dead soul. Nourishing the hungry soul. It makes wise the simple. It gives wisdom, David says. Or verse 8. It rejoices the heart. It enlightens the eyes. Verse 9. It endures forever. It is righteous altogether. These will be the effects on the one who gives their time and attention to God's word and responds appropriately to God's word. So notice, beloved, what David is doing here. He's piling up all these nouns, all these adjectives, all these verbs in order to convince you of the value of the written revelation of God in the Scripture. Because then, in verses 10 to 11, he summarizes all of this. He summarizes verses 7 to 9. And he says this, if this is what the scriptures are, then this is how you should think and feel about them. How you should think and feel about them. Verse 10, more, more to be desired are they, the word of God, than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Verse 11, moreover, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. David has penned this psalm to convince you and I, to convince us that the word of God is more desirable than any wealth and more pleasurable than the sweetest taste. There is no treasure, there is no pleasure that compares with holy scripture. This is how you should think and feel about the scripture. And so the question is this morning, is that how you think and feel about the Scripture? Is that how you feel about God's Word? That God's Word brings you more satisfaction, more joy, more delight than anything else in this world? That it is a treasure, it is a great reward to know and to read and to obey the word of God. Is that your experience? Do verses 10 and 11 describe your love for God's word? And then is that reflected in your practice of reading and studying God's word? Now, if it's not, if it's not, then it would be good for you to evaluate yourself. It would be good for you to examine yourself and, and to ask, why not? 
Why, why don't I feel this way about God's Word? Why is, why is that not my experience? But don't despair. Because David has written this psalm for the purpose not to make you feel guilty. He's written this psalm so that you would discover or rediscover the satisfaction and the joy found in the written revelation of God. That's why he wrote it. That's why it's in the Bible. There's nothing that compares. Don Whitney, in his book, The Spiritual Disciplines of the Christian Life, writes this. Notice this, quote, No spiritual discipline is more important than the intake of God's Word. Nothing can substitute for it. There simply is no healthy Christian life apart from a diet of the milk and meat of Scripture. None of this eternally essential information can be found anywhere else except the Bible. Therefore, if we would know God and be godly, we must know the Word of God intimately. So, what is your current disposition toward God's word? Can you say with the psalmist, it's more precious than gold? It's more pleasurable than any of the sweetest tastes in the world? Because listen, beloved, one of the ways we can fight against the inclinations that lure us away, that lure us away from the word of God, these substitute counterfeit pleasures is to remind ourselves often, as we see here in Psalm 19, of the immeasurable, superior benefit of the Word of God in our lives. Because this is the revelation of God. And if you want to know Him, you know Him here. So then before we move to that final stanza, two pastoral applications for you. Two questions for you. If this is what it is, and you want to treasure it more, let me ask you this question. What's your plan? What's your plan? Do you have a plan for devoting time and attention to God's Word? Because I, I would stress to you the importance of having a plan if you want to treasure God's Word. What's your plan? Author John Piper, he writes this in his book, When I Don't Desire God. He says, many good things do not happen in our lives for the simple lack of planning. We fail to do what's best for lack of serious intention to do it. Most Christians neglect their Bibles, not out of conscious disloyalty to Jesus, but because of failure to plan a time and a place and a method for reading it. So what's your plan? What's your time? What's your place? What's your method? Do you have a plan? You need a plan. Second application. What about when I lack the desire to read it? What if my feelings aren't often this? They're not verses 10 and 11. They, they don't seem desirable to me. They don't seem sweet to me. What do I do then, Pastor? Well, there could be many reasons. But the answer, beloved, simply, is pray. I know you're hoping for something better. You pray. Only God can give this 
we ask the Lord to create in us and give us the appetite and the desire for His Word. In fact, we actually find the psalmist doing this repeatedly. Specific prayers he prays, and we can pray, asking God to do this work. So let me just give you the IOUs. The IOUs, that's an acronym. That's not original to me, but it's very helpful when finding yourself lacking the desire for God's word. And they all come from the Psalms. Number one, ask the Lord to incline your heart toward his word. That's the I, incline. Psalm 119, which is all about God's word. Psalm 119, verse 36, incline my heart to your testimonies. So just begin by praying that God would incline, would direct your heart to love and desire his word. Ask him to give you the desire that you would want it, that you would have an inclination to read it. He wants to give it to you. That's the eye. Second, ask the Lord to open your eyes to behold wonderful things. Psalm 119, verse 18, open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things out of your law. You have physical eyes, but you also have spiritual eyes. Paul calls these the eyes of the heart. This is what God does at conversion. He opens your eyes spiritually at the moment he saves you. But due to remaining sin, we need our eyes to be reopened to see and behold the glory of God as we read. So ask him to open it. Third, ask him to unite your heart to fear his name. Psalm 86, verse 11. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. So as you read it, unite all of my often divided heart to fear and love and believe and obey what I read. Focus my heart on you, God. Turn it away from idols. Turn it away from lesser sinful pleasures that it would lead me away from you and unite my heart. Finally, ask the Lord to satisfy you with his word. Psalm 90, verse 14. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. That as you read it, He would satisfy you, leading you to joy, leading you to supreme pleasure, satisfaction in him, in his person, in his presence with you. As you read, pray those four things, the IOUs, and see if God doesn't begin to change your thinking and feelings toward them. But then finally, David concludes the psalm by modeling the appropriate response we should have to God's word. Look there, verses 12 to 14. Third and finally, our response to God's revelation. Our response. And there's two responses here. Two responses as David prays here, concluding this psalm, in light of God's revelation in his word, two responses. Response number one, David becomes gravely aware of his own sin and his need for God's sanctifying, preserving grace to keep him from sin. And then response number two, David is gratefully aware 
of his desperate need for a redeemer. He's aware that the law of the Lord is perfect, but I am not. First notice his awareness of his own sin. Look there, verse 12. Who can discern his errors? So David understands his own ability, inability, to discern all the sins of his heart. And the truth is, no one in this room, no matter how introspective you may be, no one can completely comprehend how sinful they really are. Here is what is true of everyone here this morning. You and I have sinful, hidden faults. Verse 12, declare me innocent from hidden faults, meaning sins that I don't even see, that I don't even perceive. Derek Kinder comments, verse 12 recognizes that a fault may be hidden, not because it's too small to see it, but because it's too characteristic of me to register. Martin Luther said, I'm more afraid of my own heart than I am any pope or cardinal. Sin in my own heart, the depths of my own depravity, the depths of my own sin. And so, as David beholds the glory and the perfection of God revealed in his word, as he sees God rightly, then and only then does he see himself rightly. And he sees and acknowledges he is a sinner. That's what God's word does. It reveals sin. Hebrews chapter 4, the word of God is living and active. No creature is hidden from its sight. All are naked and exposed to the eyes of him who we must give an account. That's what the word does. It reveals, it exposes. So notice what he does in light of his sin being exposed. He first, look, he appeals for forgiveness. Look there, for hidden sins. Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Lord, have mercy on me. He requests for his sins that he's committed to be forgiven, yet sins that he doesn't even perceive. So then, beloved, we should pray each day for God to forgive us our sins we commit that we don't even perceive. Which, by the way, will guard you from self-righteousness. Now, it doesn't mean David excused his sin, that he takes it lightly, because then look at verse 13. He then prays for protection from willful sins. Look at verse 13. Keep back your servant from presumptuous sins, willing sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Guard me, Lord. Protect me. Keep me back. So he transitions now to pray about temptations and sins. He does perceive in his own heart. He's aware not only he needs the pardon of sin, but he needs protection from sin in order to fight it, in order to flee it. So he's aware of his sin and he responds to God's revelation in his word appropriately. So the question for you and I is, do we enter our day with our need for our protection from sin? And they need to fight indwelling sin. Because then notice in verse 13, David's confidence. The end of verse 13, then I shall be blameless 
and innocent of great transgression. That's not arrogance. That's confidence. By his spirit, by his word, he will protect me. Not in my power, his power. See to the final request in David's prayer as he responds to God's revelation in the word. His awareness of his need for a redeemer. Look there, verse 14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So as David becomes aware of his own sin, as the word of God searches his own heart, Notice he responds by calling on God as his rock and his redeemer. I need a redeemer. And beloved, here we see the ultimate purpose of the scripture. They are meant to reveal to us our great redeemer. To reveal the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Creation may reveal God as our creator, but only the scripture, scripture alone, can reveal God as our redeemer who has come to us in Jesus Christ, the one who has redeemed us from our sin by dying in our place on the cross to forgive us of our sins and pay for our sins hidden and known so that we could be reconciled to God and be redeemed from sin. So church, listen. We can champion this phrase, sola scriptura. We can be all about the Reformation. But if we don't think and feel rightly about God's word, if we don't respond appropriately to God's word, recognizing our need for our own forgiveness from sin and our need for our Redeemer, it's an empty phrase that means nothing. May we be a church that holds high the authority and sufficiency of God's word and that treasures it as the very words of the living God, our rock and our redeemer. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this book. Thank you that you have revealed yourself to us. You have not left us in our sin, but have shown us our great, Savior and Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. May we treasure this book and may that be seen in how we think and how we feel and how we respond and obey it. We pray this through Christ. Amen. trust you were encouraged by the message you heard. For more information about our church, visit us online at www.2bcmtv.org or call us at 618-244-1706. And thank you for listening.